You're listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to church on this cold day. Yeah, but next week, hey, 22 degrees apparently. Yeah, 22. Hey, yeah, yeah. Sunrise service. We might even be able to see the sun and it will not be freezing. So yeah, no, that's good. Uh, We are carrying on in our series, and this series um, that we've been going through is called Behold. And uh, over this season of uh, Lent, we've we've been beholding. We've been looking at different uh, parts of the passion story, the story of uh, Jesus' arrest and his death and his resurrection. And um, the reason why we're calling it Behold is because where we fix our attention actually affects the people we're becoming. Uh, to put it differently, the, um, the clarity of the vision affects the quality of the journey. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the events leading right up to, uh, to the time of the cross and the, and the wonder and the glory of resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to behold the trial. And the passage we're going to be looking at is found in Matthew chapter 26. So if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to begin in verse 57. Uh, I'll be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. It might be a little bit different than, than your own. but uh, So Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. In honor of God's word, let's stand together. And my dear friend Robin will read our passage. Okay, Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? Now you have heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rob. You may be seated. Let's, um, let's just take a moment to pray. Jesus, this is um, about you. This is your word. This is your story. You're not a philosophy. You're not a, just a story. You are, you are the, um, 
the risen Lord over the universe. And so we come before you and we pray that you would speak to us. You give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a soft and hard heart so that we can respond, from, uh, respond to you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to behold the trial. Now, there are actually three trials that take place in, in the story. There's one that takes place in front of a fellow named uh, Annas, who is a father, the father-in-law of the high priest, uh, Caiaphas. There's a trial that takes place in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. And there's the trial that takes place in front of Pilate, who's a Roman governor. But we have time to look at one. So we're going to look at, uh, we're going to behold the trial that takes place in front of Caiaphas, the high priest. So how did we get to the place uh, where we were just reading in Matthew chapter 26? Well, we know that just the events leading up to this, uh, to this moment, we know that Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own followers, a guy named Judas. We know that Jesus has been arrested, and very quickly, he is facing trial. And when I say very quickly, I mean very quickly, because it's the same night that he's arrested. Jesus is brought to the high priest, a guy named Caiaphas, his home, and a trial is quickly arranged. Now, a number of historians have pointed out, uh, and, and, and they question whether or not the events that take place in this passage could even rightly be called a trial. Um, because, because there seems to be some pretty significant irregularities about this trial. What are some of these irregularities? Well, for one, it's held at night. It's not supposed to be held at night. It was held on, in the high priest's home instead of in the temple courts. It was on the eve of a festival day, uh, which apparently was not allowed. It was a trial that assumed or presumed guilt over innocence, we read that the witnesses were false and they couldn't even get their stories straight. We also read that the verdict is decided that same night instead of deliberating until the next day after a night's sleep. Now the goal, it seems, in this whole trial was somehow to convict this Jesus in such a way that that would lead to a further conviction in a Roman court which would result in his execution because only the Romans could carry out the death penalty. So this seems to be what's going on in this passage. So let's look at it together. And now what I'd like to begin with is to begin with, with this, this figure who's kind of lurking in the shadows in this story. And who is the guy who's lurking in the shadows? It's Peter. Yeah. Peter is one of Jesus' main, main guys, one of the main followers. And, and in many ways, this story, um, there are two trials taking place. There's one trial that's taking place in a courtroom, which we're going to look at in a moment. But there's also a trial taking place in the courtyard. And that's the trial against Peter. Because Peter is conflicted. He's a conflicted soul at this point. Because only hours ago, Peter had made quite, quite a statement. He said, and he kind of threw all of his fellow disciples under the bus. He says, hey, even if these guys bail on you, Jesus. <laughs> not this guy. I will not. I will never, never turn from you. I will never, never betray you. And then and Jesus says, really, really? I mean... Before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. 
And so then we read after Jesus is arrested that Peter, he follows at a distance. Now we need to be fair to Peter here because at least he's, he has enough courage to follow the course of events, albeit from a distance. He's doing better than, let's say, uh, another guy named Mark who uh, when, when, when trouble came, somebody grabbed him and he ran away and he left his clothes behind. He runs naked into the dark. Uh, Peter, at least, is showing a little bit of bravery, but a bravery that lacks faith. And, and bravery that lacks faith, the moment is tested, it will falter. And do you notice where we find Peter? It's really interesting, the description. We find Peter with the guards. Now, here's a man whose whole life has been or the last three years, anyhow, as being defined as being one who is with Jesus. And now he's known as the one who is with the guards, the very guards that are going to beat and, and mock Jesus in, in a few moments. There's a guy named Dale Bruner. He, he describes this warning for us. He says, you know what? If we will not pray with Jesus, we'll sit with his enemies We'll either follow Jesus closely or we really won't follow him at all. And I was thinking about Peter this week and I think, I was thinking about my own life. You know, I find it quite easy to follow Jesus when there's no risk. I can tell you this morning all about Jesus, but we're in a church. It's not a huge risk. I can proclaim his name. But the moment there's a risk, the, the moment there's a risk maybe to my reputation, to my job, to the moment there's a risk, then I'm not so sure whether or not I want to proclaim Jesus. I mean, one of the awkward things about being a pastor is that invariably in a conversation, if you're out with somebody, it'll come up, hey, so what do you do for a living? And man, it's always awkward. It's always awkward. And sometimes I try to avoid those awkward conversations. I remember being at a hockey game once, and I was with this guy. There's two of us were hanging out. And the one guy didn't know me, and he's just talking away. And, you know, he had very colorful language and, and just going on and on. And then at the end of the evening, he goes, you know, David, I never asked you. Uh, what, what, what do you do? I'm like, oh, man, what do I say? <laughs> Public relations? Should I say that? Uh, I said, man, I said, um, I'm a, uh, I'm a pastor. And I could just see in his eyes, he's going through all that he has said to me over the past two hours, all the, he's like, oh, and it, it killed the conversation, right? It just killed it. And I get it. And like, it's easy to, to follow Jesus when things are, are smooth, when there's little risk. So in this passage, what happens? Well, look at verse 59. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So you get the Jewish council, also known as the Sanhedrin. It had, uh, the council, when it was all together, had 71 members with the high priest presiding. Now, given the way the council was thrown together, they probably barely had a quorum, which would have been like 23 members. But, but the, a trial begins. And so let's look at the trial. And I like to structure it. We'll just look at, it, at the trial in four stages. The first stage is this, is the, a false prophet. 
Uh, right from the beginning, you can see the strategy of the Sanhedrin, the, the strategy of, of Caiaphas here. Um, the goal was to show that Jesus, who had just been arrested, was a false prophet. That he says he's from God, but he's really not. Now, in Jewish law, there are plenty of warnings about false prophets. These false prophets, they put themselves up as saying, I'm God's spokesman. They get a lot of people to follow them. They may even do some miracles. But in the end, they will deceive the people. And so the first step of the trial was, was really important. And that is to paint Jesus as a false prophet. Now, why? Why would they want to make him as a false prophet. Well, if he could be shown to be a false prophet, it kind of opens things up. He can be accused of a whole bunch of other things. What's more, here's the strategy. If they can show that Jesus was a false prophet, well, hey, a false prophet can, can, can get whole crowds following him. And, and, you know, who knows what this guy could end up doing. He could, he could cause a riot, and, and disrupt public order. And if he disrupts public order, guess whose attention that will get? It'll get the Roman attention, right? And so the, the goal is to show him to be a danger to Roman rule. And so we read in this passage that many false witnesses came forward, but there's a slight problem. <laughs> and we read this in all the, uh, all the accounts, is that the stories don't match. They don't match up. And so, the start, and so the charges don't stick. That is until you get to the second stage of the trial, which talks about the temple, the temple of God. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, is probably getting a little frustrated by this point. These, these star witnesses can't seem to get their stories straight. Uh, his plans are not working out. And then he, he, he brings in two guys who come forward. And the guy, one, one of the guys says, hey, do you know what? I heard this fellow, referring to Jesus as this fellow, I heard this fellow say, I can destroy the temple of God and after three days build it right back up again. That's what I heard him say. Now let's leave aside the fact that that's not what Jesus said. If you want to know what Jesus said, you can read John chapter 2. But the accusation is a dangerous accusation. Why? Why is it so dangerous? What well, has to do with what the Jewish temple represents? See, the temple in Jerusalem has to do with God's promise that he gave to Abraham long ago, that, he, that God would make a great people, a people belonging to him. And so the temple represents God's presence with his people. And to accuse Jesus of saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days was to accuse Jesus of exalting himself over God's temple. As if he has some kind of authority over God's temple and the future of God's temple. So they can accuse that Jesus is exalting himself not only over God's temple, but over the representative of God's temple, which is actually the high priest, Caiaphas. And that leads to the third stage which is Jesus' silence. Because at this point, Caiaphas is beginning to lose his patience. Uh, he's, he's impatient with the incompetent witnesses, um, and he's losing his temper with Jesus. And so he gets into Jesus' face, and he says, aren't you going to say anything? What about this testimony against you? 
And we read that Jesus remains silent. Now, two things stand out in Jesus' silence. One, Jesus knows full well that answering, answering is really not going to get him anywhere. Answering distorted charges about the temple is not going to get him anywhere. Because if they say, you know, did you say that you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? If Jesus says yes, well, then the response could be, well, how dare you exalt yourself over God? If he says, no, I didn't say that, they say, ah, you're lying. You're a false prophet. If he opts for nuance and says, well, you know, technically this is what I actually said, then he would most likely experience what a lot of people experience even today when they try to introduce nuance to a conversation. He would be shut down. One of my favorite quotes of of the modern age is this quote that says, tyranny, tyranny is the absence of nuance. Because we live in a world of sound bites. We live in a world of yes, no, black, white. Um, we, we live in a world where the most complex situation, the complex issue, we have 20 seconds on TikTok to explain our, our position or you know, so many words on Twitter to explain our, our situation. The moment you try to introduce nuance to any kind of conversation today, is to run the risk of being shut down. It turns out this isn't so modern. The same thing would apply here. The second thing that stands out in Jesus' silence, I think is more profound, because Jesus' silence would, would, would produce an echo of Scripture, and that the early church, when they would read about Jesus' silence, their mind would immediately go to a prophecy that we come across in the Old Testament, a prophecy about this figure, a suffering servant, who is going to be God's anointed, God's key person to bring about the rescue of Israel and the rescue of the world. And it's a passage that we read in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, you have these words here. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. And Jesus' silence is consistent with all that he had taught. He, that he taught on the Sermon on the Mount and in Gethsemane after his arrest. And now he displays it in his trial. And there's a power. There's a dignity to his silence. Eh? And I think about it in our own age, just as an aside, in our, in our own age of vainglory, and I think about how much effort, and I'll speak for myself, how much effort do I make in order to present an image that I want you to have of me? How much time do we spend spinning through words, trying to present an image of ourselves that we want people to have? And I think, what a contrast to our vainglorious age to see Jesus responding to these accusations in silence. 
Jesus remains silent. But this silence, man, it gets Caiaphas angry. Uh, I mean, why is Caiaphas so angry? Well, he's still got no concrete evidence against Jesus. And by remaining silent, he can't get Jesus to incriminate himself as a dangerous false prophet. And therefore, he cannot drag him before Pilate. And therefore, he cannot get Jesus executed. So in desperation, what does Caiaphas do? He actually plays his trump card and he places Jesus under a solemn oath by the living God. And he does this not so much to gain the truth, but to coerce Jesus to speak. And so what does he say? He says, enough, enough. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So this is a showdown. You have the high priest of Israel, the official representative of Israel, asking in no uncertain terms whether Jesus is the Messiah, whether Jesus is the Savior, the Son of God, the fulfillment to the promise of Abraham. Are you the Savior? Answer me. I place you under oath by the living God. Answer me. Now, before we hear Jesus' answer, I just want to say one thing that's important. For Jesus to admit that he was a Messiah, one, does not mean Jesus is admitting to being divine at this stage. The, the, the title Son of God was a title of honor. The other thing is to admit that you are a Messiah, that you are the, the, the Savior, is not to commit blasphemy, to speak false things about God. You could mistakenly think that you're the Messiah, but that doesn't mean you're speaking against God's name, though it could still land you into trouble with the Romans because the Romans did not like people claiming to be king. But my point is that to say that you're the Messiah was not necessarily blasphemy, speaking false things about God. And that leads us to our, our final stage, and that is what Jesus actually says. What does he say? Caiaphas says, answer me. And Jesus answers. And he says, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus speaks here the most important words we'll ever hear. What Jesus says here will be seen as blasphemy, will be used as chief evidence to convict him, and what he says here will get him executed. But what does he say? When pressed under oath, Jesus, first of all, says this. He says to Caiaphas, Caiaphas says, answer me, are you, are you the Messiah, the Son Son of God? Jesus says, those are your words. It literally, he literally says, you said this. Now, on one hand, it's not a negation of what was being said, but it is not an absolute affirmation. It's a qualified affirmation. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying to Caiaphas is this. What you're saying is true, but you have no idea how true it is. You have no idea who I am. 
Because then what does Jesus say? He says, however, I say to you, and these are really strong qualifiers in the Greek. And it's basically Jesus says, all right, now listen carefully what I'm going to say to you. And what does he say? He says, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas loses it. He completely flips out. He tears his clothes, which is a sign of, 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 um, of uh, expressing outrage. He tears his clothes and he yells out, Blasphemy! Blasphemy! But the question we have to ask is this. How is Jesus' answer blasphemy? How are Jesus' words an offense against God? What is Jesus saying here? Now, the key thing that seems to set Caiaphas off is that Jesus takes two very important passages found in the Old Testament, and he takes these passages and he applies them to himself. And one of the passages is Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, which is seen, which is seen by, by, by Israel, has always been seen as a messianic psalm describing the coming of the Messiah. And uh, it, it, we read in verse 1, do we have that on the screen here? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just linger on the first one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is identifying himself as the one at God's right hand, which is a place of power and authority. It's a position of great majesty and power. The one who will defeat all of God's enemies. So that, that's the first one. Oh, but the second reference packs a punch. Because the second reference is to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is a book in the Old Testament. Um, and, and what Jesus says, there's an echo of a passage in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 is an apocalyptic vision given to Daniel, who is living in exile in Babylon in the 6th century BC. And look what it says. Look what it says. In Daniel chapter 7, in this vision, Daniel gets this vision, this night vision, and he, write, and he describes it. And he says in verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, we need to lean in here because Jesus is identifying himself with the object of this vision. Jesus is saying something hugely important to everyone who is listening at the trial, including Peter, who's at a distance, and including you and me here this morning. See, Daniel's chapter 7. Let me just tell you a little bit about what's going on here. Um, Daniel chapter 7 is a fascinating chapter. And in the chapter, imagine a split-screen TV. Slit or, or 
computer screen or whatever you happen to use. <laughs> Imagine a split screen. At the beginning of uh, Daniel chapter 7, there's a description of four animals. Kind of animals. There's a, um, a lion, there's a bear, there's a leopard, and then there's just like some kind of monster. And in fact, all the animals are not just animals, they're, they're monsters. There's something twisted about each one of them. Now, you have to get this, because each one of those animals, what they represent is this. They represent all the kingdoms of the world throughout history that have shaken a fist against God. They represent rebellion, human rebellion against God. And they're depicted in these four animals. They represent all the rebellion throughout history against God's reign. And at the same time, there's another description. And the description describes this ancient of days, which is a picture of God. And the description is a courtroom where God is carrying out his justice. Now, we have to get this because on one hand, what's being described is that when we look at the world and we look at the, how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, when we see all the, all the injustice, the genocides, the murders, and all the things that go on throughout history in our, in our local towns and around the world, when we see all that's wrong with the world, we think, what is wrong with the world? The world's going to hell. The world is just out of control. And what this passage teaches us is that though the world seems to be out of control, God saying, I am in charge. I am sovereign. And though the world seems like it's out of control, you need to know all will be well. Okay, this is a picture. And in this picture, Jesus identifies himself. Jesus identifies himself. And, and what's going on, because in this picture, it's actually a picture of this heavenly court scene. And what Jesus is saying is like, Caiaphas, you think that I'm on trial? Oh, there's another court scene going on. There's another trial that's taking place. And guess who's on trial? All those who stand against the Son of Man who is coming in the clouds. And this picture of the Son of Man coming in the clouds in the book of Daniel has always been understood as someone who is, yes, human, yet divine. God and man. And Jesus is saying, for all those who stand against God's way and God's will, there will be a judgment. And Caiaphas, guess where you fit in this story? You're one of the beasts that have always stood up against the ways of God. You may think you're representing God, but you are one of the monsters, one of the beasts. Can you see why Caiaphas flips out? Caiaphas, because how did, I am God's representative. He tears his clothes. You cannot say this. Caiaphas, you're one of the beasts that strut and boast, who set themselves up against the will of God. And Jesus essentially says to him, he goes, you will be judged for your opposition to God's Messiah who has come to rescue the world, and by the way, by the way, is standing in front of you right now. 
Caiaphas loses it. Now standing there prisoner, Jesus, about to be ridiculed, mocked, and beaten, and later crucified, what Jesus says to Caiaphas here must have seemed ridiculous. It must have seemed ludicrous. It must have seemed foolish. In fact, Jesus' words are going to be thrown back into his face because when he's on the cross, people are going to come and say, hey, hey, you're on the cross. Remember, you're going to tear down the temple and build it up in three days. Let's see you do that. And here's the thing. If Jesus died on the cross and if he stayed dead, he would have gone down in history as another failed Messiah, wannabe Messiah kind of guy. But three days later, he's not dead. He's raised to life. And all that he has said, all his identity has been vindicated. Now, one of the strange pictures of providence is that by Jesus saying what he says, by Jesus saying what he says and identifying himself as the son of man in the Daniel vision, by saying that, that was actually what was going to get him killed. He's condemned to die. And I think it tells us something really important about who God is and what God is like. The Son of God, the one who is coming in the clouds, the one before whom every knee will bow, is the one who willingly goes to the cross so that you and I can experience forgiveness of sins and to be set free. He's the one who allows himself to be ravaged by the monsters and the nations of this world and die the death that we should have died in order to set us free. In the end, it was Caiaphas who who was on trial. And the reality is, is what scripture teaches us, is that every one of us will stand before Jesus. But you know what, when we see Jesus, there's a difference in terms of how he's going to look. We actually get a picture, this incredible picture in the very last book in the Bible. And um, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, all the disciples of Jesus have been killed, except one. One guy named John. And John is stuck rotting away on an island called Patmos. And while he's on this island, he's given a vision. Again, while he's on the island, while all hell is breaking loose in the Roman Empire, where the church is being persecuted and killed, Jesus gives a vision to John. And in the vision, it's an interesting vision. We get the echoes of the book of Daniel But the the language in the book of Daniel that's used to describe God and the language that's used to describe the Son of Man becomes conflated, becomes one. And it's a picture of who Jesus is. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And we read in in Revelation chapter 1, John, he gets this vision. In verse 17, he says, or in verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like, listen, one like a son of man, 
clothed with long robe, with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool and white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, a picture of justice. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But Jesus lays his right hand on him. And Jesus says, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the key to death and to hell. This week is an invitation for you to meditate on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in doing so, to meditate on just who Jesus is and also to respond accordingly. And some of you may be here this morning, you're just kind of hearing about Jesus. And this may be your invitation to respond. C.S. Lewis once wrote, these, these are powerful words and they're harsh words, I know that. But he says, you and I need to die before we die. For there's no chance afterwards. I did a funeral this week on Friday, a young guy who had died too soon. The Psalms teach us to, to number our days so that we will have hearts of wisdom. And so your invitation this morning is to behold the trial, behold the man upon the cross, behold the empty tomb, behold the risen Lord and live. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you and we, we confess that, that our vision of you is way too small. We are so thankful that you endured the cross. You died the death that we should have died so that we could live, that we could experience forgiveness, that we could be drawn into your family and be adopted as daughters and sons of the Most High. Lord, we come before you. And Jesus, we pray that this week as we meditate upon the trial and your death and your resurrection, that you would enlarge our vision of who you are. Lord, we confess that um, we, we live in a world where so much rages and boasts against you. And sometimes we find ourselves in, 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 in the midst of this. We do pray that we would come to you. You are the author of life. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.